I'm Clint Work, Fellow and Director of Academic Affairs at KEI. In 2023, KEI has set out on its Rethinking Korea initiative, which explores the evolution of U.S.-Korea relations, Korea's place in the world, and rapid changes in Korean society itself. The initiative involves both retrospective inquiry as well as prospective analysis about future trends. Our guest today is someone with direct experience monitoring international sanctions against North Korea. Maiko Takayuchi has 20 years of experience in national security specializing in WMD nonproliferation and security export controls. She served the United Nations Security Council as a member of the Panel of Experts for North Korea for five years from 2016 to 2021. While on the panel, she investigated North Korea's nuclear and other WMD programs and related procurements, its violations of embargoes, its overseas workers, and the activities of other UN-designated entities. During our conversation, we traverse a range of different topics, including how she and other experts come to serve on the panel of experts, the tumultuous period during which she served on the panel, when the Korean Peninsula moved from threats of nuclear war to historic engagement, and then back again to stalemate and recrimination, the effectiveness or lack thereof, as well as unintended consequences of sanctions, the challenges in monitoring and implementing sanctions, the effect that geopolitics has on the panel's work, and finally, the increasing attention of North Korea's cyber activities and its use of cryptocurrency. Uh, welcome, Maiko, to KEI's podcast, Korea Context. Hi, Clintstown. Uh, Thank you so much for this opportunity. Uh, my name is Maiko Takeuchi. I serve for the, the UN panel of experts. I will just explain later. Uh, but uh, from 2016 to 2021, I'm excited to have a chance to share my experience with you all. And, and we're we're very excited to to have you share it. Um, and that period, 2016 to 2021, is obviously dynamic, is one way to put it, chock full of different events and undulations, ups and downs um, in global politics and on the Korean Peninsula. Um, but before we even get to that, um, for our listeners who may not necessarily know what the panel of experts is, could you could you just give our listeners just sort of a, a brief background on, on what is the panel of experts? What does it do? What is its mandate? Sure, of course. Yes, you're right. Probably best to let me first explain what the UN North Korean sanction and then what the panel of experts is. So to counter North Korea's WMD developments, the Security Council has adopted a total of 10 sanctions resolutions since 2006. And the the UN pan, uh, North Korean Panel of Experts is a group of eight independent experts. The panel was established in 2009. And the, the experts' job is to investigate the invest implementation of the UN sanctions on North Korea only. And then uh, they report it to the Security Council. So uh, this panel as Many of the, you know, but a panel of experts published biannual report, uh, which contained the latest case of violation of the sanctions and the uh, violations and then recommendations such as 
who to be designated by the Security Council or what to do to facilitate implementation of the sanction. Hmm. And so you mentioned eight eight independent experts, uh, of which you were one. Um, I'm curious. So, what what countries do they all come from, and how how do uh, these individual experts, these independent experts like yourself, come to be on the panel? Is it something you apply for? Are you recruited? Is it some combination of the two? Sure, of course. So, the UN panel of uh, experts, the current uh, UN panel of experts, are uh, are from. All P5 members, that means US, UK, France, China, Russia, and Japan and South Korea. And currently one from Singaporean, uh, experts. And, uh, so the, it's not a written, so maybe changed in future, but the basically there's like a seven countries, a P5 club, uh, Japan and Korea has been the member since the beginning of the, uh, the establishment of the panel. And uh, the eighth member can be from other, any global South country, the preference, but uh, any other country. Okay. I have to admit, sorry to interrupt you. I have to admit, I did not know that. So that's, that is interesting to me. I did not know that. I have to fully admit that. Yeah. And then, uh, so the, so the panel uh, recruitment process is uh, like a, it's changed after I I joined, but uh, basically the, the idea is same. Like it's now it's open to the UN uh, uniformed uh, website, uh, recruitment website. So you know, like uh, you apply for it, and then first they review the documents, resume, then they have the interview. So the criteria is very simple. You if you have enough knowledge and skill to conduct investigation. And also you are good team members because this is very international and lots of discussion goings on going on there. So these are you know, the basic uh, requirements you have. And so basically you, you apply and then, uh, then you'll be reviewed. Your, your skills are reviewed. Mm. And so I put the cart before the horse a little bit. Uh, you, you said this, this process this process has evolved a bit. Um, you know, the application and recruitment process has evolved a bit. Um, was that how you joined the panel? Because previously, you were an official at Japan's defense ministry for the better part of 15 years, if I'm not mistaken. Is that right? Right, exactly. Um, yes, uh, actually, the the so the the process, the change of the process before I uh, when I joined and now is uh, mainly the difference between the 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 openness of the recruitment system. So before it was rather a uh, recommendation based by the member states, but now everyone can apply for the position because it was open to through the uh, the UN uh, website, and then uh, but when I, 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 yes, before joining the panel, I served as a policy staff of the defense ministry for 15 years. You're totally right. And then, yeah, and then, but that, my case, the application, maybe it's like a, 
a little bit irregular case for me uh, for that the time, but uh, I just applied for directly to like more directly to the United Nations rather than waiting for the recommendation of the government. And uh, so, yeah, so so the process, the time, the process is both uh, government recommendation through the government recruitment system and also the UN also up reaching out people to the the possible candidate who has skill. Okay. So sort of d- different sides to it, some formal, some a little more informal, um, but also it's evolved since then where people will just apply to the panel outright. Right. Right. Hmm. Exactly. Exactly. So this is like all the, so UN is trying to find all the possible good candidates through the government, in, you know, recommendation and other, you know, approach to the people to, to apply for. So that, that is a very, um, like, unique dynamics of the panel's recruitment system. So it's a, this, this type of hybrid format, I would say. Yeah, that, that, that makes sense. That was sort of the sense I got from, from an outsider's perspective, reading the reports and seeing how even the reports themselves evolved, their yes. formatting and, and their content. Um, I figured these processes too, I'm sure, you know, how the panel is made up also evolved. Um, right. So... Turning from you know what the panel is, what it does, how you got there, to your actual time there, right? You're mm-hmm. there from as we said, 2016 to 2021. You know, five mm-hmm. years is a long time uh, in international politics. Period. Um, but it seemed like a particularly long time, um, you know, sort of that particular five year uh, chunk. Um, it was, you know, the Korean Peninsula went from uh, you know increased testing both missile and nuclear tests on uh, uh, North Korea's part, Ten, uh, increased tensions, obviously electoral turnover in the U.S., uh, and the, the rhetorical threats back and forth between President Trump and Kim Jong-un, a sudden shift to engagement and talks and negotiations, you know, improved inter-Korean relations, improved U.S.-North Korean relations, this, this sense that m- maybe something new and different was developing uh, and then with the the disappointing failure at the Hanoi summit to craft some further way forward, that engagement, those talks stalemate. North Korea starts to ramp up its testing again. Um, and COVID hits, which just disrupts everything. And I would imagine the panel's own operations. And now, uh, and, and by 2021, your final year, Things tensions on the peninsula had 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 really started to ramp up again, uh, and it's only really gotten worse uh, since. And so, I, I was just curious. Uh, obviously, so much happened over that five year period. I'm sure it's difficult to encapsulate it all. But could you could you maybe just talk about how those really significant and sometimes sudden changes affected the panel's work? Sure. Um, that. The change of the dynamics concerning the UN policy affect the panel, of course. And then, yeah, and especially 2000, in 2016 and 17, the countries agreed to put maximum pressure on North Korea. And then the, the, the sanction measures were also expanded drastically. So the time, it's like so hard for even diplomats to understand what's their new obligations and what to do. And suddenly hit the, the countries who 
previous leaders not have to pay too much attention to North Korean, you know, WMD product. Now suddenly in the, you know, the, the, the hot country who has to deal with the strengthening sanction. So I met the time. I met lots of member states representatives to explain what's the UN sanctions and also informally consulted with lots of members to what exactly they have to do deal with their own country situation, say North Korean workers or, you know, any North Korean active businesses that previously was totally okay, but not okay anymore. So the, the period uh, contribute a lot to raising the awareness of the UN sanction. But then after 2018, the panel, like internally and also from outside, suddenly like compelled to explain the humanitarian impact of the sanction and possible lift or that sudden issue that's beyond originally the the panel's main capacity and also maybe some are even beyond the panel's mandate to think about what the you know how the sanction should go that's beyond the panel's uh, mandate but anyways that that the, the during this period i and not only me but some other panel members seriously concerned well not necessarily concerned but uh think about oh Maybe this uh, sanction might be lifted at some point. That that I still, you know, that this is a very unique and exciting part of working in the United Nations system, because that you know we never know what's uh, happening next in this, you know, the resolution like Iran, like international politics, would um, affect this system a lot. Yeah, this is a this is a really interesting point, right? Your the mandate is to help member states understand uh, and enforce these sanctions, and then all of a sudden you're in a situation where you're, and, and of course the sanctions themselves are evolving. They're the sectoral sanctions coming on, or they're getting much more targeted, precise, comprehensive, in all these ways. Um. And then all of a sudden you're in an environment where you have to contemplate what some of these actually might be lifted, right? So the very countries you've been talking to about how they need to be more aware and enforce these things, then then the message might be the contrary, right? You have to go to them and say, actually, now it's changed. Um, roll these things back um, or you know, adjust, uh, adjust um, your relations with North Korea accordingly. Um, so just digging down a little bit into that point, um, about the effectiveness of sanctions. And there, there's sure. the, the other piece, of course, is the unintended consequence, the humanitarian consequence. Uh, you know, some would argue that it's intended, right? Uh, you know, depending on who you speak to. Um, but, but first, the effectiveness. You know, it's about they're only effective, as effective um, as their implementation. And their implementation is only as robust as UN member states uh, are willing to make it. Um, and so could you talk a little bit about, you know, I'm sure each country case is different, but what are some of the obstacles that countries face in implementing these things? Because they could be aware and not even opposed to the sanctions, but still not be very good about implementing them. And what are some of the factors that that drive that that lack of effectiveness? 
Yes, that's a serious problem because that's if there's the country intentionally just don't implement things are maybe easier or not easier. I cannot say, but uh, if the, it's beyond the country's uh, you know capacity, that's the serious concern. For example, what of course I don't name the particular country because because they are also trying to struggling to implement the sanction. However, I. You know, I assisted, even now I'm assisting the countries, say their, their, their capacity to investigate or law enforcement is not, you know, good enough to, um, to detect North Korea's activity. Or sometimes there's a stovepipe uh, relationship between the government agencies. So they do not have the information about say, entry of North Korea to the people who have to do the law enforcement to, you know, watch North Korea's, you know, um, North Korean workers to come into the country and uh, who, who know, or not necessarily workers, but any North Korean representatives come into the country. So, and also lack of coordination among the agencies are another issue. And the thirdly, of course, the you know people are not always aware of North Korean sanctions. So, like last year's report, you can see a North Korean student uh, after post doctoral degree, this you know uh, student start working in the European, uh, the the same countries, European countries uh, lab, and receiving the the salary. By working, that's a clear violation of the North Korean uh, workers' uh, restriction repatriation obligation. However, that things happens when the certain sector is not always aware of the North Korean sanction. So I think the one case is just simply do not have the capacity, or second, the lack of interagency collaboration. And thirdly, sometimes the certain sector is not aware of the North Korean sanction because that's not their scope of their work. So these things affect a lot. Like these three things are the the main factor of the, the unwitting, like uh, in violating the sanction. Yeah, yeah, and and the other side of that is, of course, the North Koreans are so so constrained and so hyper strategic that they're it really pays for them to to know where these vulnerabilities are right to and to try to exploit these vulnerabilities i would think if anybody understands where these vulnerabilities are most acute it would be the north korean officials and authorities as they try to to navigate a, a really um uh, comprehensive international sanctions regime to sort of to to play on these or exploit these uh, these loopholes or weaknesses in capacity and and interagency communication in, in this government or that, it's interesting. I with some some friends and colleagues who who work uh, in this space these days. Um, sometimes it's as basic as informing uh, officials in in different ports what the North Korean flag looks like. There'll even be basic knowledge like that that's lacking, just some uh-huh. of the basic markers of awareness. So it's, I just think it's 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 interesting to learn more about this and um, 
at a more fine grained level because you 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 read new sanctions have been passed and they target these sectors and they they constrain um, North Korea's ability to um, garner resources in in any number of ways to uh, further its nuclear missile programs. But I think sometimes there's an assumption that just because the sanctions is passed, you know, that, that they'll sort of be implemented and there'll be this sort of seamless process. And clearly it is not. Um, it exists on paper, but then the reality is much messier. So it's interesting to hear your perspective on that. Um, beyond just the effectiveness or lack thereof, uh, in some cases of sanctions, um, and, it, and this can rest, as you were just describing, in a particular country's capacity uh, amid other factors. Geopolitics, of course, affects the sanctions regime. And I would imagine uh, the panel's own work. And so I'm, I'm curious how, and when I say geopolitics, I'm, yeah, I'm talking about U.S.-China relations specifically and how those have uh, grown worse, you know, markedly worse over the last five plus years and more so of late, that must have affected the panel's work. Um, and I'm curious uh, to what degree you could, you could speak to that. Sure, of course. Um, yeah. So first of all, like I, I know, uh, sometimes like a uh, former colleagues dis- discuss the panel's, uh, internal discussions, but, uh, I think that that part might just, that kind of disclosure might affect the panel's credibility. So I, I support, to support my, uh, current panel, I only, uh, comment, like just, uh, maybe limited, um, of course, stuff. of but, course, uh, but also, yeah, of course, politics affect the panel. And uh, now you can see the situation is more difficult, especially after I left the panel. If you see the panel's report, especially since 2021, and one more footnotes on the dissenting views among the panel members, or that that's added. So that's, I I guess, that, well, that, that type of conversation uh shows how much intense intensified being intensified the panel's discussion. On the other hand, yes, uh the you know the all the job uh geopolitic politics affect the 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 member states but uh also most of the member states still willing to uh provide information to the panel. Despite of all this, uh, the change, say, for example, even, you know, like, uh, even after the, the North Korea become more like a, like a turn their policy to talk or like a, decide not to talk anymore. All this, uh, aside from that, uh, like separate from all this, uh, geopolitics, many countries are constantly just contribute to the, uh, provide the panel with information on the any uh, possible cases. So, yeah, so I, I, because I already left the panel, so I cannot really uh, disclose the talk, especially the, the panel's dynamics after uh, since 2021. Sure, but, sure. Uh, yeah, but at, at the same time, as you can see in the panel's report, lots of, you know, debates going on. In the yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and also like, uh, yeah, but, and also, you know, on the other hand, member states are still willing to assist the panel. That's very uh, strong support for the panel too. 
Yeah, that's uh I mean, this is why, of course, I asked the question, right? Because I've I I poured over all the reports, frankly, in the last few weeks in preparation for our conversation. And maybe someone's done this, I'm not sure, but a study of the 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 panel uh, reports formatting and contents and footnotes specifically itself is a worthwhile research topic. Maybe I've just given uh, an enterprising graduate student their research topic because you can see in the content itself and how and, and how it's formatted and again particularly the, the footnotes um, you know the, it's the panel of experts but they don't it doesn't necessarily speak with it doesn't necessarily speak with one voice, right? There are different voices on it and debates. Uh, and it's interesting to see how those play out, even though you can only get so much clarity. If you trace it over time, you can you can pick up on on how this is, uh, had become more prominent um, in the period you're talking about. Um, also, speaking of footnotes, um, but turning to um, North Korea's cyber activities, I noticed in reading the report, I think it was the 2015 report, if I'm not mistaken. They're all sort of jumbled in my mind now. But it was the first instance where I saw a footnote talking about uh, hacking attempts on the panel and uh, the experts uh, on the panel. Um, and there also started to be increasing focus in the reports on North Korea's cyber activities. Um, it became you know, sort of a, an interest uh, uh, of greater interest um, in, in the international community and a focus of the panel's work. And so I was hoping if you could maybe explain how the panel started to place more attention on North Korea's cyber activities and what were some of the main drivers of that increased focus. Sure. Um, yes. The So you're right. The, of course, the North Korea's cy- cyber attack itself was widely known even before, like the, after the Sony pictures attack or Bangladesh one, like all, all these things like is more concerning. But at the same time, yes, the, since 2015 and when I joined the panel, I also personally very swiftly got the targeted. By the, <laughs> I the, would the, imagine so, so. So suddenly like under my name, the mail was sent to everybody and then Email was sent under my name, but the the sign was my predecessor. So like, okay, so that time it's more clumsy attack. But then one year later, I found I I got email from one of my panel colleagues related to the the exact topic that we could easily discuss. So like, wow. So that, you know, that's my personal own experience how they got sophisticated very quickly. And but you, so just to interject, so in that particular case, you, there were some red flags though. You were able to recognize that it was a phishing attempt before well, being actually, compromised by it, or or did you click on the wrong document? Honestly, I got lucky because got lucky. the time because the time we're still working in, in person, so like, but the mail was sent after my work hours. So like it was so close that I could just start working at night, but also I just, in the morning, I just talked to the colleague. Hey, oh, so I see. So you had the opportunity hey, yeah, to ask this. them. Yeah. Then like, what? So what, what email? 
What? Oh, okay. I don't know. This is, uh, they try to intentionally, you know, choose the timing that people in the US just easily just open the email, like without talking with your colleagues or the time that's a good old days. I think it's still 2018 or something. They work more like North Korean working hour time. So now that's more, they're more flexible, but uh, before certain time preference exist among the North Korean hackers. So the time, like usually the hacking attempt comes in the, the good timing for Asian hours, not for the UN, US hours. But uh, yeah, so, but that is my own personal experience. But of course, so it's like at all the, at the same time, it's not only the panel. What's the driver of this uh, panel's more uh, increased attention to this cyber attack is all the collaborative work by the member states or missions are also attacked harshly. And then, of course, it's not always clear that the missions t- was uh, targeted by North Korea or any other country who also want to know what's the, their diplomatic policy. That's it's all, though, of course, that could be possible that other than North Korea also wants to attack them, any member states. Sure, sure. Yeah, they're not system. the only the, yeah, cyber actors, of course. But at the same time, now, now, currently, the attribution is more uh, sophisticated. So there's a more uh, cre- credible information that some attacks are from North Korea. So, but uh, going back to the main drivers, I would say that's the, all the attack, massive attacks, not only the panel, but also the member against the member states and also the UN system itself. And see that all the, uh, the financial institutes that banks that got attacked that you know before before North Korean hackers more focusing on virtual currency they try to attack the, the bank system itself so all these uh, uh, massive attacking campaign increase the seriousness of the North Korea's uh, cyber actors attacks really affect the panel's uh, you know focus to more on cyber issues too mm. Um, and you just alluded to what was the following question of mine, um, which is about their North Korea's cryptocurrency heist, which has, you know, been headline news now for a lot this year, but, but really starting, I think last year and even before, um, there's obviously increased interest in this. And I was curious in your view, and you alluded to this, what's the biggest difference between sanctions against traditional financial institutions and cryptocurrency exchanges and platforms? And are there any lessons that can be learned from the former that could be applied to the latter? So the, so the difficulty of monitoring uh, of current cryptocurrency trading is the lack of the UN con- US contact. So let me explain. So traditionally, international financial transactions are either in U.S. dollars or through the U.S. banks at some point. This is even the case, often the case, even if the money transfer is between non-U.S. countries to non-U.S. companies, 
and not even based on the UN dollars on its face, but it's the simply speaking, this UN, US contact, either you use of US banks at some point of the transaction, international transaction, or using the US dollar gives the US to kind of reach out, intervene this case. But, uh, you know, the once they prefer using virtual currency, then it's not so, uh, so lack, the US lacks the contact, not always. So happening there, US does not always have the contact. So the, that is the most difficult part of the, uh, and the difference between the traditional financial transaction monitoring and the virtual currency transaction monitoring. So, however, uh, you know, certain extent, we can still learn a lot from traditional transactions because at certain extent, because you, if you want to procure something prohibited item, then you have to pay it by cash. So at some point, like, of course, and then of course, there, there's a way that, uh, they cash out non-US currency and just do their transaction outside of the US. By, by a cash. Of course, no credit card, please. Of course, that's uh, the point. So, however, uh, as you can see in this, uh, US designate, US OFAX designations of overseas collaborators who facilitate exchange of the North Korea's virtual assets to fiat currency or like gift cards. But, so to buy further virtual currency. So, at some point, they have to make it convert it to the cash. And that is a point that, uh, the, the intelligence can come in to capture the, the network or collaborator. So still, that's a key of the, and then that's that the know-how and intelligence of the uh, financial investigation. We can still learn a lot and use the techniques to the, uh, to catch the, even if on the face, it's more like a virtual currency because they have to cash out at some point. Sure. Um, and, and so in that regard, and, and, and maybe you're not sure about this, but are there any bottlenecks in North Korea's money laundering and also that cashing out process? That the U.S. government and other like-minded member states can can target that that they haven't been, or that they could target maybe more uh, severely or precisely. You mean the 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 shortcomings of or like any weak point of North Korea's activity, or or opposite, like a weak point of the implementation side? Uh, yeah, implementation side is what oh, I had in mind. Right. Um, yeah, I think it's not only this cyber domain. But sure. it's in a wider context. We need the update of traditional uh, sanction implementation regime to adopt all this new method. So what I can say is limited resources in the most of the government in the cyber domain is an issue. And then, so of course, U.S. cyber policy, like a defense or even U.S. offense, cyber offense is very uh, advanced, but not every country has similar resources. And the North Korea is always try to find the weakest target. So that's the biggest concern, like a gap of the implementation 
ability is the the bottlenecks of the the one of the serious bottlenecks of the our side to counter North Korea's cyber activities and money laundering. And uh, so I think the US, like a US OFAX designation of the mixing strategies, like, uh, tornado cash will blend I, I, I all, like that, that type of, or say, uh, in the, um, so all these each country's like-minded countries effort to designate the service that North Korea use or um, the, the cyber actors, or even over overseas collaborators, all these efforts would eventually pressure North Korea on the cyber activities. However, there's a vast majority of the sectors, it's still unguarded or not unaware of the North Korean cyber attack. And also the limited personnel who is available and also available for the sanction implementation act sector, even in the government. Sure, That's like the, the problems that applied to previous to concerns about exploitation of of cryptocurrency to evade sanctions. The same obstacles different member states had to implement sanctions before still apply now. And and now in a new realm that's even more difficult to regulate and police, essentially. Yeah, exactly. So I didn't send this question, but I want to ask it um, because it relates to this. And it's something I've, I was curious about when it comes to assumptions we have about there's a crypto heist we see in a, in a newspaper report they make off with 700 million the equivalent of $700 million in cryptocurrencies. But the assumption that we have is that at some point, as you mentioned, North Korean authorities will have to, uh, or or cyber actors will have to convert this to fiat currency at some point as the, the medium of exchange to, to get whatever it is that they're seeking. I was curious... Might might it be the case that the that the cryptocurrency itself could be used as the medium of exchange? In other words, that they might just transfer ownership to a certain amount of crypto to somebody else in exchange for the goods or resources they seek. I mean, maybe not on a, on a large scale, but when we talk about illicit actors in this space, they may want. To stay in that space, in this, you know, and, and again, this is this comes from a place of total ignorance about how uh, ownership of these things can be tracked or maybe stopped. But th- that's sort of the the idea. That's one of the reasons that so many illicit actors are drawn to this space is because it is so opaque and difficult to track in real time. So, do you think that this may be something the North Korean authorities um, or cyber actors, excuse me, would uh, would would do? essentially use the crypto itself as the medium of exchange. Yeah, could be totally possible. It's just, you know, North Korea and are very good at just taking advantage of all this system and uh, internet and cyber activities. Say, for example, like they, they're busy with like uh, now, if, no, not now, like now they are busy with, uh, not necessarily busy, but uh they are interested in N- N- NFT type of uh, like the non-fungible token as a, to to get revenue. Maybe that you know that type of internet 
internet world, they prefer just using cryptocurrencies each other could be possible. And also before that, uh, it, even 90, uh, say four years, four years ago or so, you know, they actively conduct the mining of the Bitcoin sure, or like that. Sure. So a- any, any sort of transaction, even using just a cryptocurrency yeah. by them is also, of course, like possible. They, they, the goal is to raise revenue or, you know, get the resources. And if that is available by uh, the cryptocurrency, uh, using then they'll exploit it. Of course, yeah. of course, why not? Yeah. Mm. Um, my wild, somehow wild guess, but based on my, you know, other <laughs> chat with well, other. No, I mean, it <laughs> seems right. It seems chess. like a yeah. No, I, I mean, I think I tend to agree. It seems like a sound assumption that if there's an opportunity, um, like you said, to to exploit loopholes and garner uh, revenue from it, that they, they will find it and they will exploit it. Um, so that sort of naturally leads to this question: How can the existing international sanctions regime against North Korea or in relation to North Korea change to keep up with its constantly diversifying methods? Sure. Um, so, of course, uh, I think... Or can it? I'm sorry, yeah, I did but like, or can it? Yeah. I mean, because if we have so much difficulty with the existing regime and clearly the Russias and the Chinas of the world aren't interested and are actively blocking new sanctions and, you know, potentially enforcing existing ones, how, how is it supposed to evolve to be more effective in the future? I think we, we can do a lot. And then first of all, the people often say, oh, the, the, the sanction is not always uh, of course, that's not always fully implemented, but it's not working. But it's not true because, say, for example, the uh, the the since two thousand sixteen, the North Korea's uh, export decreased in like almost the levels fifteen uh, percent of before the sanction, and even though North Korea's uh, coal coal export that's a totally banned, but uh, it's it's continued. However. The, the scale is totally amount that could be exported is totally, uh, decreased. Uh, you can also see this significance of the decrease in the import of the refined petroleum product that often, you know, member states say, Oh, there's a violation. Yes, that's true. There's a violation. However, before the sanction, North Korea imported more than four million barrels. And, uh, but then, then, um, but then, you know, last year's pure report import, including even with the illicit export, uh, import, is about, uh, say, one million barrels. So as such, uh, North, the ex, uh, North Korean sanction actually really affects the North Korea's economy. That's my first guess. However, of course, uh, there's so many, uh, you know, like loopholes and international sanctions regime have to cope with that and uh, keep up with that. And um, updates of the sanctions and mindset of the governments are needed 
seriously needed. So traditional traditional security control and financial sanction regime are still vital. But as we discussed, North Korea's cyber uh, domain activities so you know now more active, and maybe most likely North Korea is uh, the if if the the North Korea's activity, especially for the uh, uh, virtual assets uh, theft, will be more increasing and increasing to mitigate the impact of the sanction. Of course, they would do it, and then uh, so. So and then this even in the world like a cyber security there's not so many officials or trustworthy uh, personnel who is working on the the cyber domain there's so vast amount of needs of the such kind of uh, this thin IT engineers while the number is limited and so as such. That type of uh, the the needs of personnel and the more interagency collaboration is needed, intersector uh, sectoral uh, collaboration, especially the say uh, trade control sector and financial uh, monitoring sector should be collaborated more. But in reality, it's not happening. Even like-minded countries, because these sectors are in a different government agencies and information exchange are not always smooth. And on the other hand, of course, to have to deal with this North Korean cyber issues, at some point I seriously need the, the update of the sanction regime is needed. The sanction regime is very heavily on the traditional export control and financial monitoring, but now in the the system and method to counter such and monitor such illicit activity and the method and resources needed to counter their cyber activity is not always the same, of course. So, and that the resources is needed for the cyber, to counter cyber domain activities. And to do that, probably member states need the official, you know, US, uh, UN, United Nations Security Council resolutions to, you know, to shift the change. Yeah, but of course, of course, even if current uh, current uh, resolutions, the member states actually can handle this type counter cyber activities. For example, under the resolution, an asset, financial asset, to be restricted. From uh, prohibited from being transferred for North Korea's WMD activities, uh, any asset, tangible, intangible, in a re- so resolution. So read the resolution. So you can actually do it. Any mm. government. The, the, the text already exists. To yes, yes. To us, yeah. to leave the room for any like-minded country who actively work on that, and so, same as say, so so as the cyber actors, most of them are. And the Reconnaissance General Bureau, RGB, or Munition Industry Department, that's also already under the designated, uh, UN designated, uh, entities. So any activities, I like, so the member states, if they are there in this country, they have to repatriate them. And also they have to uh, seize the asset if, because they are working on behalf of the UN designated member. You know, institute. So as such, if 
there there are so many rooms that uh, actually the the member states can do even under the current uh, resolutions. However, maybe to clarify, it's way better to have the the officially uh, officially decided UN sanctions uh, resolutions, mm. which are. Uh, Given current conditions, uh, un- unlikely to emerge anytime <laughs> soon. Um, we mentioned, so I have no doubt that um, the sanctions regime is has an enormous effect on North Korea and its economy and its people. And so we're talking about the regime. We're talking about cyber actors, regime actors, the leadership, but that is different from the North Korean people. Right? Exactly. A, that's a key distinction. Right. And the North Korean people are and have suffered for a long time for an assortment of reasons. Um, th- there are many critics who argue, I think not without reason, that the sanctions have are not the only source of their suffering, to be clear, but contribute to it. And the idea that sectoral sanctions, I heard someone say, is sort of the nuclear bomb of sanctions when it comes to its humanitarian effects. Um now, obviously, there are carve-outs in the sanctions for humanitarian purposes. Um, uh, I was curious, to the extent that you could, if you could speak about some of those unintended consequences, the degree to which the panel grappled with them, um, and do, do the even the carve-outs allow enough space to help address the North Korean people's um, uh, suffering? Sure. Um, first of all, the, the uh, UN North Korean uh, Sanction Committee, so it's Security Council, not only just carve out the, the human, uh, the exemption of human rights uh, support, but also they they issued uh, the new implementation uh, like guideline, so that uh, they can, the, if member states have a request for urgent human rights assistance. They can even, uh, like with, within uh, three or five business days, the Security Council, uh, this North Korean committee, can approve the, the assistance to go to, North, uh, to be shipped to North Korea or this uh, conduct in North Korea. So, the, uh, so not only the resolutions, but also the committee made particular effort to actually you can uh, conduct human rights assistant by the request of the either international organizations or member states to, you know, swiftly deliver to the North Korean people, especially during the COVID time. It, the, it was a crucial, um, a, the crucial issue that I thought when they, but uh, on the end, also, we, yeah, you are totally right. We shouldn't forget, like, say, North Korea to mitigate the, the resolution, uh, the impact of the sanctions. For example, they changed the, they changed the industry a lot. So they increased the, the product that's not, uh, not sanctioned or embargoed while decreasing, probably decreasing the, the production of certain, industry before that was the main source of the income. Like, a, for example, uh, like a tungsten where it's like $400,000 in 2016. Now that they export more than $18 million in, 
you know, in 2019, or you know, what movements from they jump the production rate of jumped up from five million to eighty three million in five four five years, or as such. But that doesn't mean the the country can mitigate the risk of the, uh, the impact. But doesn't mean that all the workers who is was in the industry can easily transfer to the new industry. So that that I I assume that type of North Korea's decision to change to mitigate the impact of the sanction still does affect the people. The, so these all the conversion or North Korea's government effort to uh, mitigate the impact still does affect the cost of lives of people. So so that 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 I always keep in mind. But that is by the again that's a responsibility of North Korea. It's North Korea's leadership responsibility to do to create this situation. So that's always I I also want to emphasize this is there is actually the I can easily assess there's an impact of the sanction. But the key to solve is North Korea to come back to the diplomatic table to discuss this their issue as written in the resolutions. Sure, sure. I yeah, I mean I don't I, I agree heartily with the agency and responsibility that the North Korean government and authorities themselves have in this process, without doubt. Um, I'm just, I'm curious, you know, like the, the, the sanctions have effects are um, very comprehensive, but have they been effective? I mean, right. We look at North Korea's nuclear missile program it's more advanced than most experts ever thought it would be. Certainly, as quickly as it's advanced, has exceeded most expectations and prognostications. So, one of the central objectives of sanctions is, of course, to prevent this advancement uh, and the means by which North Korea pursues it, and hopefully, to as you said. Uh, encourage, force it to come back to negotiations um, to address the threats that neighboring states feel as a result of these these weapons. But it's very clear, right? It doesn't take an expert to say that, well, on the face of it, it seems the sanctions haven't worked uh, because the, the, the opposite outcome has has occurred. Um, I, and I'm uh, and I'm sorry. I'm sort of at this curveball. I'm I'm sort of just a little philosophical about this. I didn't I didn't send this ahead of time, but I'm curious. Have the sanctions succeeded, or have they have they failed? So I personally think uh, hmm. sanction actually. So as I said before, they cut the revenue drastically. For sure, even, for sure. Even increasing, uh, including uh, even. You take in consideration of the illicit import or export. The, so, on the other hand, of course, North Korea is showing off their capability so that it's hey, not working. But personally, so but without sanction, like a, so, they that that means not like a North Korea. Personally, I think this what we can uh, 
draw from this situation as a conclusion or assessment uh, evaluation is not necessarily like oh so that's why North Korea sanction is not working but uh, we need more to do it but also the so showing off the capability does not mean they have enough resources so during the Hanoi summit for example one of North Korea's request, strong request is lift of the sanction that means that North Korea knows aware that the, this uh, comprehensive sanction eventually decreased the resources and revenue of the North Korea while they try to show it's not working. And so we should uh, carefully read the numbers so that, okay, they are still importing uh, beyond the cap of the, uh, the fuel, but it's way below the standard of what they could import before the sanction. Well, they export with the coal earning income, uh, earning revenue, but surely that these coal are significantly, you know, discounted because of the situation. So as such, I think it's for that aspect, I think the sanction is still um, affecting North Korea's economy. But of course, North Korea is trying to mitigate the risk and find a new domain, say, cyber attack. So that's why it's not about the, the current sanction is not working, but we need more to do for sure. Hmm. Um, I, I asked, you know, if you might be able to touch on your current work and, and what you yeah. do, and um, do you continue to focus on North Korea? I mean, maybe just inform our listeners what you what you do do now. And, and in that job, do you continue to focus on North Korea? If so, how? Um, sure. I'm interested as well. Sure, of course. So I'm now the head of the Asia Pacific of, of Office of CCSI. This is uh, where the organization to promote UN uh, policy. So we, we're supporting countries' effort to implement the, U, uh, the, the country's obligation under the UN resolutions, not only North Korean sanction, but non-proliferation or even human rights issues. And then, so our team members are all either former UN uh, uh, mem- panel members or other officers or government officials who have the experience of relevant fields. So, uh, you know, I, I still working on this, uh, North Korean issues, assisting member states effort to implement North Korean sanction. And on the other hand, I also, as an independent expert, I join lots of investigations and, uh, or, you know, speak to the media, for example, like I joined it. So, uh, and write article the, to the general public because What's important is re- keep on raising awareness of this issue because people easily forget and never thought we are the target. Well, we accidentally hire North Korean IT workers. You know, there's always happening, even in Japan. So, like a Japan is one of the Japanese citizens are so aware of North Korean sanctions, but still people just unwittingly involved in North Korean business or just, you know, join the North Korean like a North Korean, like a company, of course, North Korea's name are never in the Sure, sure. On the first view, but, you know, like they, oh, yeah, I can join your com- company. And eventually that company behind it, like a North Korean spies actually 
operating the company. So as such, so raising awareness is a key to, uh, I mean, so like that's, that's why I, you know, I joined the investigation with media or think tanks to disclose any North Korea's activities. And I, I wrote articles to tell them what, tell general public what's happening. So that's, that's basically what I'm doing right now. Mm. Well, I, I want to thank you for sharing uh, your time and so much of your um, experience and your thoughts and expertise on, I was going to say this issue, but it's not really one issue. It's so many issues um, that are complex and intertwined and constantly evolving. Um, I remember, I can't remember when it was, Micah, but the first time we met was in Seoul. You were still working for Japan's Ministry of Defense, if I'm not mistaken. And it was at one of these get-togethers organized by somebody of graduate students toiling in, in obscurity, which was me at that time, uh, analysts at think tanks, government officials, it's sort of a hodgepodge of cosmopolitan international misfits who all happened to be in Seoul at that time. And we met at some bar in Itaewon and I, we got to, you know, we, we, I think we, we spoke, um, at some length at that time and, and have encountered you since then, both as, uh, an expert on the panel and now in your, your current work. So it's, it's always very enjoyable to continue to cross paths either in person or in this case, virtually as we continue to, to go through our, uh, respective careers. So, um, it's a joy to, to share this time with you. And I really do appreciate your, your willingness to, to speak with us. Of course. Thank you so much. Clinton, and see you soon again. Yeah, I think you will. I think we will. Yeah. All right. Take care. Thank you. Bye-bye. I want to thank Maiko Takayuchi one more time for sharing her extensive experience and insight from her work on the panel of experts and also alert you, our listeners, to keep an eye out for future Korean Context podcasts on our podcast website.